Autoimmune diseases, uh, diseases that I reckon are especially insidious. An autoimmune disease is a disease where our body's own defence mechanism mistakenly starts attacking our own body. So an example of this sort of thing is rheumatoid arthritis. That's where our own body starts attacking our own joints. Or multiple sclerosis, that's where our body starts attacking our own nervous system. Not only are these particularly painful conditions, but I just reckon it's a sad irony that the very bits of our body that should be protecting us, in fact, turn out to be hurting us. Now, friends, this morning's Bible passage is sort of the spiritual equivalent of an autoimmune disease. This is a passage about Christians who are arguing and belittling and condemning each other. This is a part of the Bible which is about different bits of Christ's body who ought to be protecting each other, in fact, are hurting one another. So if you've been following along in Romans, you'll know that a couple of weeks back, as Alan has mentioned in chapter 12, Paul explained that we Christians belong to one another. As a church family, we are so close that it's like a body. There's different bits, but we're all joined together as one. And so for a church family to be condemning each other and bickering possibly with one another and condemning what that, that's just not unbecoming. It's catastrophic. That's a body attacking itself. And all heaven weeps. Now all this comes up in Romans in this section because of a problem over something that the Apostle Paul calls disputable matters. Did you notice that in the very first verse of chapter 14? Except him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Now, what, what exactly are these disputable matters? Short answer is a disputable matter is a matter that doesn't really matter. Uh, These are things that the Bible says we can have liberty of opinion over, things that are neither here nor there, things that you can choose to do if you want to or choose not to do if you don't want to. I think you can tell that about a disputable matter because of the two examples that the Apostle Paul goes on to refer to in this chapter. The first one's diet, verse 2. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. See, what we eat is a disputable matter. Whether you're a meat lover, whether you're a vegetarian, whether you're a vegan, whether you're a fruitarian or a lacto-ovo vegetarian, doesn't really matter. Then in verse 14, again in verse 20, Paul says, all foods are clean, so we're at liberty to eat whatever we want. It's a disputable matter. It doesn't matter. Another example that gets mentioned in the passage is keeping sacred days, verse 5. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Well, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Whether to keep special religious days is a disputable matter. Paul says, whatever you do, just be convinced in yourself. Whether you're into following a full-blown liturgical calendar, evidently today is St. Francis of Assisi Sunday, or whether you're just into the Easter Christmas sort of thing, or whether you're into Sabbath-keeping, like in the Old Testament, 
or whether you're just not into any special days at all, we're at liberty to do whatever. It's a disputable matter. It doesn't actually matter. Now, maybe we could list off a few more contemporary ones. Can Christians drink alcohol? Can Christians smoke? Can we have tattoos? Can we have body piercing? Is it important that we have periods of fasting? What should we wear to our church meetings? What things should happen in our church meetings? Do we need to have singing in our church meetings? Well, if we do go into singing, what sort of song should we sing? Do we need to vote a certain way? Are we allowed to vote for the Greens? What translation of the Bible should we use? How often during the week should we read our Bibles? Should our kids go to the Christian school? How often should we have communion? When we baptise people, should we dunk them or should we sprinkle them? Can we baptise babies? Or should we dedicate them? I want to suggest to you that they are all disputable matters. They are all issues over which the Bible says straight up they don't matter or else we can infer they don't matter all that much because the Bible doesn't conclusively say one thing or the other. Mind you, some of us could have very strong opinions about those. In fact, some of the things that I've mentioned, you might feel so strongly about them that you're now upset with me because I've just suggested that they're only a disputable matter. That's exactly the sort of tension that's going on here in Rome that Paul is addressing. It's the tension that comes from Christians having strong, differing views over matters that don't actually matter. Now, in the Roman church, this is a big problem because, as we've already noted a few times, this is a church that contains both Jews and Gentiles. So there's a massive potential for a blow-up on this sort of thing. Just think of the two examples that Paul mentions here. Diet. Well, Christians from a Jewish background, they would have felt very strongly about stuff they could and couldn't eat. Jews grew up with the idea that diet was a very important aspect of their godliness, that you couldn't eat shellfish, you couldn't eat pork, you had to cook meat a certain way. There's all these feelings of conscience that would have persisted into their Christian lives. But on the other hand, you've got Gentile Christians for whom this was just a non-event. Sweet and sour pork, they loved it. There's a problem. You've got a church barbecue, church picnic. What happens when a Gentile Christian accidentally drops their pork spare rib onto a Jewish Christian salad roll? <laughs> Suddenly there's a massive barney on. What about religious days? Again, Jew, Jewish Christians brought up very big thing about some days being special. All these religious festivals they used to keep, as well as the whole Sabbath thing. But for Gentiles, again, non-event. All days the same. So a a Gentile Christian comes up with a bright idea of a church bushwalk on a Sabbath and suddenly it's on again. This is a fellowship time bomb ready to go off. Before we look at how Paul diffuses the bomb, though, there's just one other thing worth noticing back in verse 1 and I just want us to notice that mention of weak faith. Who exactly has the weak faith in these sorts of circumstances? Except him, verse 1, whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters, 
One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Now, I'd just like you to notice that it's the person who eats only vegetables who is described as having weak faith. In other words, the weak faith seems to be the person who least understands the liberty we enjoy in Christ. Now, it's the same in 1 Corinthians 8 where Paul talks about this sort of stuff again. The person whose faith in who's weak is the one who doesn't appreciate the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm drawing attention to this for two reasons. Firstly, it's actually the reverse to how the world often thinks about us Christians. Often the world thinks in terms of us Christians being religious when they see us keep rules. And so the world tends to think, wow, so-and-so is so religious. They don't drink, they don't smoke, they only eat fish on Fridays, they always keep Sunday as a Sabbath, they don't watch telly, they, they seem to be fast, they are so religious. Passages like this, I want to suggest that they indicate that the more religious rules a person keeps, maybe it's a sign that they actually have a weak faith. Because the consistent New Testament line is that a weak faith is the one that doesn't understand the wonderful freedom and liberty we enjoy because of Jesus. Which leads me to the second reason I'm drawing attention to this, because it's actually a lovely reinforcement of the fact that we're saved by grace. We're not saved by having to keep a bunch of rules. We're saved by Jesus' death on our behalf, and that, that opens up an enormous liberty of lifestyle. But a weak faith doesn't quite get that. So it keeps gravitating back to rules and, and, and routines. And it's a particular problem here in Rome. Jew and Gentile Christians, all with this mixture of weak and strong faiths regarding disputable matters. What's the solution? Paul counsels two things. The first one that comes up in the text is basically don't judge one another. And here Paul has an eye on everyone, those with weak faith, those with strong faith. Verse 3. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who doesn't, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God's accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? Look down at verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we all stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let's stop passing judgment on one another. Now you get the logic here. It's a bit similar to what he said a couple of weeks ago when he said don't take revenge on people because that's God's job, not us. Well, now he's saying don't judge each other because that's also God's job, not ours. Each of us is going to have to give an account of ourselves to God, so don't act as if people are going to have to give an account of themselves to you. So if you enjoy a glass of wine with your meal, don't get all smug and superior and think that you're somehow better than those poor, unenlightened, teetotaling Christians who don't understand that there's nothing wrong with that. And if you don't drink alcohol, then don't look down on those Christians who do and think how slack and undisciplined they are. And don't they know how much damage alcohol causes in the community? It's a matter of a liberty. You and I will have to give an account to God as to why we've chosen one thing and not the other. But verse 13, let's stop passing judgment on one another. 
we really ought not to judge one another, especially over matters that don't actually matter. And it would be terrific if we actually worked on this one, I reckon. Because this alone has the potential to really change a church family. Because often with these things, we may not break out into a straight-out argument over it, but these are the sort of things that can still influence how we treat one another. Because what tends to happen is that when we mix with each other, and especially when we meet someone for the first time, we just tend to instinctively take in and make value judgments based on all this stuff that just doesn't matter. And we notice how attractive another person is. And we notice what clothes they're wearing. And whether we can see brand names on the clothes. And we take in any sort of jewellery they might have on. And we notice the mobile phone they have and the car they drive and the sort of house they live in. And we take in what their personality is like and how easily they are to get on with and whether their sense of humour is a bit like ours and how well they speak and what their vocab's like and what their interests are and how many kids they have and what their job is. And it's all stuff that just doesn't matter. It's the stuff that would fall into the disputable category which God says is just indifferent one way or the other and yet we just instinctively, we we take it all in and we gather all the information and we slot them into our personal pecking order. And we either slot the person up high and we think, well, this person's okay, I can spend time with this person, I might even invite this person back for a meal or we slot them in low and we tend not to go much out of our way for that person. And it's based on stuff that doesn't matter. It's based on disputable matters, traits that God says we can just have liberty over. Let's stop passing judgment on each other over this sort of stuff. Paul goes on, though, And really the main thing he wants to say in the rest of the passage is that the key response is that of love, of wanting to build each other up. Look, for example, at verse 14 of chapter 14. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it's unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Look down at verse 19. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not not please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbour for his good to build him up. All the way through here, Paul hammers away on really the same point, and that is that the thing that governs our behaviour is we ought to just do the thing that is most helpful for the other person. We should always do what is most edifying for the other person. So if you like pork, but you're having someone around for a meal who's got a conscience problem, don't serve it up. You enjoy a beer with your meal? 
You've got a brother or sister coming who, who, who feels that it's wrong for Christians to drink alcohol. Don't put a six-pack on the table. And it's interesting here that the thing he's targeting is those whose faith is strong. And he's especially targeting them with this advice, that just because you feel as if you have Christian liberty to enjoy something, that doesn't mean we should. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbour for his good, to build him up, for Christ didn't please himself. At the Western Plains Convention, one of the most contentious issues every year is the music. Almost every year, without fail, the steering committee of the convention gets comments about the music. That either the convention doesn't have enough traditional hymns or else the, uh, the convention didn't have enough newer ones for people to hear and learn and go home with. What's always the most disappointing thing, though, is I don't think I've ever heard someone suggest anything other than their personal preference about the music. I don't think I can ever remember someone coming up to me and saying, hey, Bryson, I actually prefer all the modern songs, but I've noticed that there's quite a few older Christians here. Do you reckon we should have some more hymns? Nor can I, I don't think I can ever remember anyone coming up to me and saying, hey, Bryson, I love singing hymns, but do you think we should have some more new ones? There's lots of people here who come from churches where they don't get to hear many new songs, so even though I don't particularly like them, do you reckon we could have some more newer ones? But that's the sort of attitude we should have for one another. It's different to the world. It's not about our right to have what we want. It's not about others. You know, this is my house. So they're my guests. They fit in around what I do. It's not, it, it's not about standing on our rights over matters that don't matter. It's not about judging each other. It's foregoing what we might have every right to enjoy, but foregoing it because it means building someone else up. This is what should make a church family stand out from the crowd. We always consider what best helps the other person, irrespective of what our personal preference might be. Because remember from a couple of weeks back, we belong to each other. We're members of the same body. Which is why Paul finishes off this section the way he does. Because remember back in Rome, the heart of the problem is you've got a blend of Jew and, Christian, uh, Jew and Gentile Christians and they've all got their strong opinions and backgrounds over disputable matters. And that's why Paul finishes off by reminding them that despite the big differences in their cultural and lifestyle backgrounds, their differences are far outweighed by their unity in Christ. So he says things like in chapter 15 verse 5, May the, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And he goes on and he makes all these Old Testament quotes to prove his point that it's now both Jew and Gentile who are now one in Christ 
And as Jew and Gentile, their solidarity in Christ there in Rome should totally swamp any difference of opinion they might have, especially over disputable matters, because remember, they don't actually matter. The other day, I, uh, I did my back in while I was moving some furniture around the house, poor old thing that I am. Uh, but instinctively, without even thinking about it, other bits of my body actually started to compensate for it. It was my lower left back that went out and the right side of my body started taking up the slack. Getting out of a chair, I'd lean more forward. My right leg would now start taking most of my weight. My right arm would push me. It 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 actually just automatically started happening. That's what should be happening in a church family. When one member is sensitive... When one member is weak, the others compensate. It's just what we do. We don't judge each other. We don't stand on our rights to do what we want. We help build each other up. It's just what we do. Because remember, we belong to one another. We're the one body. I'll pray. Father, again, we ask for your help here, that you would help to uh, continue to mould us into the people that you would be so that as a church family we would excel in seeking to edify one another and build one another up. Please help us to uh, be discerning and caring and loving so that we might put uh, no hindrances in each other's faith. Father, thank you for each other. Thank you for the great joy it is to be in a church family. And we pray that we would be a church family that would uh, so love each other well that we would stand out in this world as a witness for you. Amen.